standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to Sunday Chops. Mickey here. I hope you and yours are doing well. It's Friday morning in my world and very, very much time for a second coffee. Maybe a biscuit, which on the recommendation of our listener, Rachel, I have stopped calling sadness tablets and instead I'm going to start calling them joy pills. It is, it's time to reclaim some happiness and biscuits feel like a solid, delicious start. You are about to hear me chatting with American poet and essayist Molly McCulley-Brown. Her latest book is Places I've Taken My Body, a collection of personal essays that covers a lot of ground. In terms of geography, yeah, she does love to travel, but more in terms of the physical, emotional and mental journeys of life in all its frustration, pain, limitations, joy, humour and colour, told through Molly's lens of living with cerebral palsy. I'm going to be honest with you, I am still reeling from it. The last line of the last essay, which Molly actually reads out in our chat, left me in tatters. And Molly's beautiful, careful writing moves from a caress to a fist in the gut in a heartbeat. Which is not to say that the book isn't also packed with humour, because it is. Here, Molly and I chat about disability and desire, treating a body with kindness, and how hard that can be. The sheer brilliance of the documentary Crip Camp, Oh my God, seriously, if you've not already watched it and I have wanged on a lot about it, you really need to. And activism by necessity rather than choice. I hope you enjoy listening to Molly as much as I enjoyed talking with her. I'm sure you will. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by poet and author Molly McCulley-Brown, whose first book, a prize-winning collection of poetry called The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, was quite rightly lauded, and whose recent book, Places I've Taken My Body, is a lyrical, wide-roaming collection of essays. Molly, hello. Hello. So first of all, tell us where you are in the world at the moment. So right now I'm in the States. I'm in Virginia, um, kind of in the in the absolute middle of nowhere, which is where my parents live and where I grew up. And I, I have sort of come back here to live out this pandemic year with family and, and friends. That is the first time you've lived at home since you were, what, 16? 16. It's been a, it's been a time. <laughs> <laughs> are you enjoying it? Yeah, I am. I mean, I am. Obviously, I feel eager to to get back to my own life. And I think like many people, I feel like, you know, many things about my existence have sort of been put on pause in this this strange year. Um, And as you know, from reading the book, I am most comfortable traveling and adventuring and moving around. And so this is is an awful lot of stillness for, for me. But I but I do feel very lucky to have family that I love and to have a place to be that is safe and accompanied and comfortable during this this really 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 hard year. Yeah let's talk about places I've taken my body it's a collection of small works it's essays but it is a big book in that it covers a lot of ground your relationship with your body a religious conversion a lost twin travel eugenics a person trying to find a place in the world all through your lens of living with cerebral palsy. Could you tell us how it all came about, please? Yeah, I mean, the the real answer is really by accident. You mentioned I'm a poet by training and have been a poet for a long time. Um, and I really feel like I, 
I backwards my way into writing, <laughs> into writing nonfiction and memoir kind of unintentionally. I've always read a lot of personal nonfiction. And I think like a lot of people who are writers and who grew up as readers, books are always where I've gone for company and community and communion and to, and to learn. And so I think as I aged, especially in my, in my adolescence and my early adulthood, you know, I wanted to find books that I felt like could keep me company in this experience of being a young adult with a visible and significant disability that, that shaped, you know, essentially every facet of my life, but that didn't prevent me from having and wanting to have a whole life, you mm -hmm. know, that was multifaceted and complicated. And when I went looking for narratives that were not about, um, not about sort of inspiring able-bodied people and not about the search for cures and not about, you know, just records of medical trauma for the sake of recording medical trauma. I, I had a hard time finding them. And I think that in some ways this book came about because I figured, okay, if I can't find the kind of nonfiction I, I want to read that the advice I'd always been given is, you know, you have to, you have to write the book that you, that you want to read. And so I, I sort of started writing essays individually and publishing them on, you know, various outlets online and just figuring that that was kind of as far as it would go, right? That I would continue my career as a poet and I would I would just occasionally write personal nonfiction. But I, I happened to have an editor in the States who I loved, who had published my first book of poems, who wrote to me at one point and said, you know, I've been reading some of your essays and do you have a book idea? Have you ever thought about writing a, a collection of, of nonfiction? And, and I knew just enough at that point to know that if an editor ever says to you, do you have a book idea? You lie and you say, <laughs> yes, I totally have a book idea. I definitely thought about this before. Um, and so that's what I did. I was like, well, guess I better figure out a book idea. And I was really lucky that sort of right about the same time, my agent, Anna Stein, reached out to me. She'd read a little bit of my prose and she was like, if you ever are working on a, a prose project, I'd love to be involved. And I got to write back to her and say, well, I may or may not just have agreed to write this book. And the, the text kind of took shape. And then when I won the Amy Lowell and embarked upon this year of travel, this fellowship where I was traveling abroad, that really clarified the shape of the, the book and what the, what the collection would become. Because, of course, with the title, Places I've Taken My Body, it is geography. You are traveling with your body, but it's also emotional, physical, mental. It doesn't stop. It's constant that you're having to take your body places in the same way that we all do. Out of a whole book of beautifully written lines that make you think, two really, really stood out for me. You refer to them as dueling benedictions and admonitions. And I think a lot of people, particularly over the last 12 months, will find these really speak to you. And it is, be grateful you are small and brief and breathing. Be careful you are small and brief and breathing. And they appear in the essay Public Anatomy, but they are basically guidelines for life, right? Absolutely. I mean, that is, I think, you know, I felt like, and I, I want to be really careful when I talk to clarify all the time that I'm only speaking to my own experience as a disabled person. And I'm not ever saying, you know, this is how all of disabled course. people feel. Because I think that that generality, it's really easy to sort of fall into it when you're asked to, to speak about um, your particular embodied experience. But I, I will certainly say that my experience as a person with a disability is that often it's just a kind of exaggerated version of the mortal experience, right? And of what it means to be a person in a body that is changing and changeable and valuable and mortal. And that I, I sometimes feel as if I experience those things to a higher degree or in a sped up way or in a more intense way. But I certainly think 
we are all small and brief and breathing, you know, and we're all mortal in a world that's going to outlast us. Yeah, I think that's probably really come home to people over the course of the pandemic, particularly. Yeah, I think that this is a time in which we as a society or a world are increasingly aware of the the sort of the miraculousness of being a biological organism that is alive and also the fragility of that that fact right um and the sort of the ways in which um our health our mobility all of that are tenuous and and temporary you know for everyone and i think that that's a thing that that people with disabilities know and have known and have been have been knowing and i think everyone has to some degree at least been delivered into that knowledge by this really difficult and and sort of extreme year yeah i remember chatting to someone oh it was quite a few years ago and she just said, oh, you know, able-bodied people might call us disabled people, but we refer to you as not disabled yet. <laughs> right, yeah, or temporarily able-bodied, right, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have always been sort of really troubled by or anti the rhetoric that's like, you know, everyone has some kind of disability because that's a lie, right? Like some people <laughs> have some people have disabilities and some people don't. But I do think that health and mobility are, are tenuous and temporary, right? And that that if we are lucky enough to be people who who age, right, and who live into old age, some changing relationship to our, our body and our agility and our balance and our health is, is coming for all of us. It struck me, and it, it struck me while I was reading the book, that you have by necessity a much greater understanding of your body than most people. And you treat it with respect and gratitude. But, and I might be wrong, so please do correct me, it felt like you struggled to treat yourself with kindness. You quite actively try to run away from yourself. I mean, I've, I've done that as well, and it never works out. Is that fair to say? And if so, are you getting better at treating yourself with kindness? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely a fair a fair characterization, or at least a fair characterization is that while I try to remind myself and while I do feel as if I've gotten better at reminding myself to treat my to treat my body with with respect and gratitude and and awareness, I also have spent large portions of my life being incredibly frustrated by it, right? And incredibly angry at it and feeling betrayed by it and frustrated at its limits for lots of complicated reasons. Again, I was a young person who had a who had a very present, very visible physical disability that required a lot of medical and orthopedic intervention, particularly in my childhood and adolescence, which is typical of cerebral palsy. Just to give you a little bit of background, CP is a neurological disorder that most commonly results from oxygen deprivation, either during or immediately after birth. It's really common in premature infants. Um, so I was born at 27 weeks. I weighed like two and a half pounds, essentially. Um, and just as a result of that, that very small, very early oxygen-deprived birth, I have what is essentially brain damage. It's a little like having a stroke um, immediately after you are, are born. Mm -hmm. And CP is a, a huge umbrella disorder because depending on the nature and the extent of the brain damage, it affects people incredibly differently. So there are people with cerebral palsy that's so mild that you might not know, it, you might just think, oh, that person is a little clumsy, right? Or that person's gait is a little strange. And then there are people with CP that's so severe that they that it affects the muscles in their, their face and their tongue, and they don't walk at all, and their speech might be impaired. And there's a whole range of degrees of involvement and, um, and of particularities of the, the nature of the disability. 
my particular type is called moderate spastic diplegia. And so what that means is that I can walk, but just a very little bit. My muscle tone is very, very high and my balance is very, very bad. It affects all of my body, but primarily the, my legs, the lower half of my body. And I use a wheelchair to get around most of the time. And again, my balance is just really terrible. You could like touch me with your finger and I would fall over. I'm not going to do that. That's, that's... <laughs> Don't, yeah. No. Well, across Zoom, you, you would have a hard time. So. <laughs> but I think that because I grew up in this body that required sort of constant intervention and constant help and constant maintenance... But because I was also a young person who uh, was from the jump very verbal, very articulate, very smart, for lack of a sort of a better term, and also took great refuge in my intelligence. And I had, you know, parents who loved me and who are my advocates and who made every opportunity possible for me. I think that I developed without really being conscious of it, this idea that if I was impressive enough and smart enough and successful enough, I could, for lack of a better metaphor, outrun the sort of immutable realities of my body, right? Yeah. And outrun the truth of it. And I think I spent a long time, a, a large part of my, my adolescence and my, and my early adulthood just being like, well, I'm just going to be really, really excellent at everything I do. And I'm going to just outrun this. And then I think at a certain point, as you point out, that you, you just become aware that like it's not going to matter how hard you work or how excellent you are you are an adult with a disability and you were a child with a disability and you've grown up into an adult woman with a disability and you have to look around and just make peace with that fact. And that is very much an ongoing project for me. But I do think I'm getting better at it. And I do think that the act of writing this book was in some ways an act of trying to attend to the real realities of who I who I am and what my life is like, both when they are wonderful and beautiful and gratitude inducing and when they are frightening and frustrating and difficult to look at. Yeah, that, that wrestling with your CP, knowing that it's integral to you, but not mm -hmm. wanting to be defined by it is a, is a recurring theme throughout the book. I would like to talk about each individual essay because they are all fierce and important and they overlap. We don't have time for that. So I'm going to focus on one that is partly about joy and partly about frustration, and that is The Broken Country on Disability and Desire. Everybody loves this. I have to say, this has been the, this has been the locating point for lots of conversations about this book. <laughs> well, okay. So I'm going to ask you, why do you think that is? I know why I think it is, but I'd love to know why you think it is. So I think this is a multifaceted question, and I'm sure there, there are answers that are more and less complicated, and, and I think there are, there are probably truths, truths that add a variety of points. So to give your listeners a little bit of background, this is an essay, in part, it's, about, it's an essay about sexuality and desire and intimacy and disability, right? And it's an essay about the complexity of both conceiving of your body as a place that can bring you connection and joy and pleasure when your body has largely been a site of pain and frustration and difficulty and medical intervention and sort of distrustfulness, right? Because you don't quite ever know how it's going to behave or mm -hmm. when it's going to hurt you. Um, and also the sort of twin complexity of learning to conceive of yourself as a person and a partner who can be desired and desirable in a society that is primed to view people with disabilities as sexless and infantile and and certainly not as as partners or parents or sexual beings 
And I think that there are a lot of reasons why this essay has maybe struck a chord with people. I think, I mean, the simplest one is like, sex is a sort of taboo topic, but it's also a topic that I think holds a lot of draw for people, you know, mm -hmm. and it's and it's a, it's a universal experience, right? This experience of desire and, and intimacy. And I think, I think many people have complicated and multifaceted and involving relationships with their own sexualities, right? Yep. And so I think that that's, I think that there's a lot that's going on there. And I also think um, that sex and disability remains a pretty taboo topic in our society. We don't talk about it a lot, particularly because of this sort of deeply troubling and and pervasive stereotype that if you are a person with disability, you are, you are not a sexual person. And not only are you not a desirable person, but you're also not a person who desires, right? Yeah. Um, and I think this essay sort of walks right up to that reality and, and like punches it in the face for lack of, you know, and I think that people are really interested in that and they're really interested in the directness of the way that this, this essay this essay takes that on. But I'd be interested to hear what you're interested in about it or what drew you to it or, or what you want to talk about here. I think it needed writing. I think it has been avoided and, and like, it's a big thing of if you, if you if you can't see it in the world, you can't be it. And there are, there are very few representations of people with disabilities on television that aren't like I mean and it is changing very very slowly but aren't like victims or like villains even like there's a, a whole history of that and so it's totally. really it's yeah. really refreshing to have someone just go yeah I you know I like sex I have sex why is this a big deal for people I think and it is just yeah crossing it off as a boundary maybe rubbing it out as a boundary so that the more conversation about it the less likely it is that someone in the future unlike you who never had anyone talk to you about this and what your body was capable of when it came to joy that will change and I think you have done a really important conversation starter and hopefully by us talking about it it's a conversation starter for other people as well yeah, I really hope so. You know, and I, I sort of had to make my peace or get comfortable with the notion of this conversation in stages. You know, I knew that I needed to write this essay and I knew that it needed to exist in the book. And I knew that it was the kind of essay we talked before about the fact that I wrote this book largely as a sort of corrective to an absence that I had felt very acutely as a young person. And this was certainly like a particularly glaring gaping absence. As I write in the essay, I saw no representations anywhere of women with disabilities that looked anything like mine as desirable or desiring as partners, as parents, as sexual beings, as intimate partners, as any of that. And I couldn't find anybody writing about that absence in a way that was not um, sort of purely scientific or scholastic. You know, mm -hmm. there were some people saying like, isn't this interesting? Or like, here's some data about why this is the case. But there wasn't anybody saying, okay, here's like the lived felt experience yeah. of this. Um, and so I knew that needed writing, but obviously, you know, it's, it's a level of disclosure um, that there's a, there's a, you know, I had to be like, well, yes, I'm going to write this essay about my sex life. And then when the book came out and it became, you know, and even before the book came out, I published that essay first in the States and then it got picked up in the UK by The Guardian and by Vogue which was great and incredibly exciting and wonderful. But also I was like, wow, now there's an essay about my sex life in Vogue. That's the thing <laughs> that we're, we're doing now, um, you know? And it became clear that this was gonna be a conversation that I was having over and over again. One way in which I've sort of been able to put my own discomfort about it down is to think about how 
totally delighted I would have been and how comforted I would have been as a young person, right? As a teenager with a disability to, to discover this conversation. I think I would have felt so seen and it would have felt really possible to me. Like, oh my God, people are having this conversation and people are living lives that are that are about not just sex, but about intimacy and partnership and, and love, right? And um, and there is a model for this, right? Because I think when we talk about the importance of representation, a lot of what we're talking about is like, there are models for the kind of life that you hope you can lead, mm-hmm. right? But that you may not know for sure if it's possible, if literally no one around you who looks like you or moves like you or lives like you is visibly living that kind of life. And so every time I'm like, oh man, do I really want to have this conversation about my sex life on the internet? Um, I think about what it would have meant to me to discover this conversation as a young person, you know? And then, and one great thing is you do something enough times that it ceases to be uncomfortable. So now I feel like, yep, let's do it. I'm ready. Here we go. Molly, you have become the sexy data. That's what's happened. Yeah, hilarious. I know. (laughs) Hey there, listener. If you've often found yourself wondering what else we're getting up to besides interviewing top women for your listening pleasure, you are in luck. We've revamped our newsletter, now known as the Bush Telegram, see what we did there, which we'll be taking it in turns to write. So now you can read all about what books Mix had a nose in, what Hannah's been watching, and what food substance I've been picking out of my daughter's ear. To subscribe, go to standardissuepodcast.com, and if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you will find a little box to whack your email in. And to be honest, no one would give me a Noel Edmonds watch column. So this has worked out rather well. You mentioned in Places I've Taken My Body, you mentioned one of my favourite activists ever, Dr. Judy Human. She founded Disabled in Action and in no mean feat, she absolutely steals the show for me in the excellent documentary Crip Camp. Can, yeah, we, just can, we, just, can we just pause and shout out how important Crip Camp is? What an incredible documentary. What an enormous, just an enormous feat of storytelling and what an enormous feat of activism I am obviously I'm American and the the Americans with Disabilities Act the ADA was passed in 1990 and that is the law in America that makes equal access for people with disabilities to things like a physical access to buildings but also access to employment and education and those kinds of things um and I was born in 1991 and so I am the ADA generation right and my entire life is marked by the fact that this piece of legislation was in place, right? And so I was mainstreamed in schools, right? In public schools in the United States. Um, And I was guaranteed access to the educational opportunities that I needed. And I am aware all the time and we can have a separate conversation about the fact that the ADA is in is an insufficient law. Yep. There are lots of things that, that still need to happen, but I'm aware all the time of how different my life is because of of the Americans with Disabilities Act and and to sort of bring it back around the children, later adults and activists who are profiled in Crip Camp um, and the things that happen in that community and in that space um, and then later in the lives of these activists are directly responsible for that legislation. Um, and I owe people like Judy, I owe them the whole scope of my life. And Crip Camp is an extraordinary, um, it's an extraordinary documentary I found it both deeply comforting and deeply painful to watch. And I think everyone ought to go watch it right now and feel an enormous amount of of gratitude and, and respect.
Yes, I agree. I've wanged on about Crip Camp on the podcast quite a lot. Uh, so it was 1985 when our equivalent of the act came in in the UK and uh, my grandma was in a wheelchair. And I just look back for when I was little. So I was born in 77. So for those years when before that act had come in and after that act had come in, the places we couldn't go because there would be no access. All of the places that she couldn't get to she couldn't see anymore that had been curtailed and also just the way people looked at her and talked about her as if she wasn't fucking there and that woman was there she was the big influence in our life it's just astonishing that that is such recent history and that the attitudes I think obviously things have moved forward hugely and and rightly but there is still a lot of work to be done Absolutely. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it's impossible to legislate discrimination out of existence, Mm -hmm. right? And we can legislate and should legislate to the highest degree possible access barriers. And we should legislate out of existence institutional roadblocks to inclusion and success. But the attitude that, that had people speaking to your grandmother as if she wasn't there is still an attitude that exists in the world today. And it's not an attitude that can be changed by signing a piece of legislation into law. I still encounter out in the world all the time people who will address questions and comments to the able-bodied people who are with me, whoever they may be, rather than to me. And obviously that that would be absurd and inappropriate in any in any case. It feels especially absurd. It's, it's, I'm a you know I'm a I'm a writer. I'm a college professor. I it's, it's like absurd, right? That that there are still people who assume that I can't answer the, the most basic of, of questions. But it's but it is a pervasive attitude in our society. So again, I'm going to ask you a question that I already have an answer to, but I want yours, and that is whether you consider places I've taken my body to be activism. Yeah, so this is a really this is a really good question. And I will say that it's a question that I have a complicated relationship to. Because, and here's the thing, and this is a complicated answer, and it's an answer that I, I have mixed feelings about. I am very proud of the degree to which I have been able to be an activist. And I certainly consider myself an activist in part in terms of what I do. And I'm very grateful for the platform that I've been given and the platform that my work has been given. And for what I hope has been the, even if relatively small, amount of positive change that I have been able to make. I will also tell you, and I don't say this, I don't say this proudly. And in fact, I say it with with maybe some small degree of shame, but I would never have picked it. I would never have picked being an activist. I wanted to be, and I want to be, an artist and an educator, which, you know, maybe meets activism in some places. But the thing I wanted to do was I wanted to be, I wanted to be a poet and a writer and I wanted to teach students. That was what I wanted. But I live in a body that makes leaving my house in the morning, it makes it a public act and it makes it a form of activism, right? Like existing in my body (laughs) um, is a political act, regardless of whether I, I want it to be or not. And so I didn't get to pick. I am an activist by virtue of the body that I live in and by virtue of the fact that I inhabit that body. And so, yes, the text is, I think, a form of activism in that I hope that it changes public conversation, in that I hope that it provides a different kind of perspective, in that I hope that it pushes for progress, which is, I think, what what good activism does. But mostly, if I have any hopes for the sort of book beyond like I hope that it's a beautiful piece and effective piece of art because that is what I have always wanted to do I hope that it's a book in again in which as I said other people with disabilities and particularly other young women with disabilities can can find themselves and, and feel seen 
So I would say, yes, I think it's a piece of activism, but that isn't a life for either myself or the book that I necessarily would have picked. I have the privilege of speaking to so many incredible women, so many incredible female activists, and not one of them have said they picked it. So I think you're in excellent company because actually we we wouldn't choose it, would we? We wouldn't choose to be activists because we choose for there not to be anything to have to be an activist about. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, and it absolutely is a piece of art as well. Your writing is utterly beautiful and moving. I love that you're angry and you're not scared of that. And then sometimes you're scared of that. And I love I love that faith looms very large and I I was brought up a Catholic, but I don't have that faith anymore, but I have total respect for yours. And one of my favourite lines, because it's also very funny in parts of the book, is love as fiercely as you fight. What an obnoxiously necessary platitude. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm so pissed sometimes at the fact that I like have no choice but to believe in God or in the way that faith looms so large in my in my life or, or the fact that like yeah I say a platitude that would like if anybody said it to me would make me want to punch someone in the face and I'm like oh but it's fucking true right and that's maddening I have a very I very grappling relationship with God and with faith but I also don't feel like I this is another thing that I don't feel like I get to pick like I grew up in a place where religion is a I think largely like a very culturally conservative relatively damaging force in the world and I would not have picked being a religious person if I felt like I had been given an option but I fucking believe in God and I can't do anything I can't do anything (laughs) about it it's just true (laughs) there's a there's a whole other podcast in in religion to to have a chat about that and I think it's really interesting because it's so different in America than it is in the UK or certainly my experience in the UK despite being brought up a Catholic and having quite Catholic families but yeah there's an excellent essay they're all excellent but the cost of certainty which is about evangelical faith and kind of old-time religion which is still huge over in America and we we don't really have that here is absolutely fascinating and also I think the cost of certainty can be put across so many other issues as well yeah yeah, and that's an idea that I'm I'm really interested in. Yeah. I'm going to be really mean. Sorry, not sorry. That's all right. And if you could only direct readers to one of your essays, and, and, you know, to be clear, I think they should read all of them, which would it be and why? Oh, God. Oh, listeners, she so sat back and put her head in her hands. <laughs> I don't, yeah, that is a terrible... That's like asking me to pick a favourite child. Uh-huh. You can't do Everyone, that. Everyone's got a favourite child. Um, oh, do they? I'm going to have to ask my parents about that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's so interesting. I mean, I think I promise that I'll give I'll give less of a cop out answer after I give this cop out answer. But I think you know one of my favorite things about collections of essays, um, and and really collections of poems, and any text that that is sort of cognizant of itself as pieces and as a whole, mm-hmm. it offers different kinds of readers, different kinds of things, and it also offers a reader different things at different moments, right? I think I love books that allow me to return to them again and again and again at, at different moments of my life and discover that the piece of them that I, I need most or the thing that speaks most clearly or cleanly or urgently to me at one moment is very different than the thing that spoke most cleanly or clearly or urgently to me at another moment. Yeah. Um, and so to, to, to a certain degree, this is the kind of thing where where I would I would want to be like, okay, what tell me about yourself. 
right? Like, tell me about what you tell me about what you're interested in. Tell me about what you think you need. Tell me about who you are, and then I could then I could sort of give you a prescription for for an essay <laughs> in the in the text. I'm very proud of, and I think in some ways it's book. It's one of the longest essays in the book, and it is in some ways I think the essay that was me trying to to come to some conclusions um, because I was figuring out how to end the book. I'm very. I came to really love, even as it was incredibly difficult, the final essay in the book, which is a, which is an essay called Frankenstein Abroad, which is simultaneously about my relationship with Mary Shelley's gothic novel, Frankenstein, but also about my relationship with monstrosity and identity. And it's also an essay in which I try to figure out where I have arrived over the course of the book. And so it's an essay that I think is, is doing a lot of things, and I hope it is both smart and funny, um, and I hope it's, it's ranging in in a variety of senses. And so I hope that that might have something to offer a variety of kinds of readers and in a variety of kinds of directions. Yeah, I love that one. And it, it kind of felt to me that it worked beautifully as a conclusion to the book, but it would have worked just as well as an introduction to the book. Yeah, and we actually, funnily enough, we had some we had some conversations about whether it was going to be the first essay in the book or the last. But I think ultimately the the essay ends, and it's it's especially funny to read this line now in the light of the pandemic and of this last year. But the essay ends with the line: "In the theater, I do not unstitch myself. I sit still long after the lights come up. I stay where I am." And it ends with this sort of mandate towards stillness and toward pausing and toward living in a reality rather than, as you sort of gestured at earlier in the conversation, running like hell from it. (laughs) Um, And that made it feel like the end of the book to me. You know, that in some ways after this year of travel and this life, this youth that had been marked in a deeply unlikely way by this extremely peripatetic existence, right? I have this body that should make me like the least peripatetic person in the world. And instead I have lived this life that was like, oh, I think I'll live in, you know, seven states and five <laughs> countries in over the course of like 11 years. And I'll pick up at every moment in writing the book and in living one particularly busy year of travel and an adolescence and 20s marked by consistent motion. I'll be 30 um, in just a couple of months. And I think I feel really proud to have reached 30, a person who is a little more comfortable coming to rest, not as a way of giving up adventures, uh, which I plan to continue to go on and have for the rest of my life. But I think I want to be a person who is moving toward rather than running from that essay, I think is very much about that transition. Places I've Taken My Body is published by Faber and is out now. Molly, what are you working on at the moment? Oh man, right now I am working on getting back to writing some poems um, and and putting myself in that space and also starting to plot out another uh, more researched book of creative nonfiction, I think less of a memoir and I hope more of a, a sort of outward looking text about medicalized childhoods and about people who have as children or adolescents surgeries that are at the time very experimental and what it means to grow up uh, at the forefront of Western medicine and in a body that has been intervened upon in a way that no one before you has been intervened upon so with no map for for what the future of that of that intervention looks like yeah wow and also just that's something that comes across in places i've taken my body that that history that we all have when it comes to modern medicine that history that we are resting on the shoulders of people who weren't complicit and did not consent and it is a heavy it's heavy Absolutely. And I think that that's a really, that's an under talked about part of contemporary medicine. And I, and I will say that, you know, I owe Western medicine 
a huge part of my mobility. I, I've had many surgical and orthopedic interventions, again, starting in very young childhood. Um, and I owe my current mobility and the independence of my life um, and the manageable levels of my pain largely to contemporary medicine. But medicine is, and particularly surgery is violence. Yeah. Um, and it is violence not only in the way that it intervenes upon our bodies, it requires cutting and stretching and blood and really, you know, breaching the body, but it's also violent in its history. And it's violent in the fact that the populations that allowed us to learn the things that we know about human anatomy um, and about science and about the way that both drugs and um, and implements act inside and upon the body were marginalized populations, right? Mm -hmm. And in America, that means impoverished people. It means people of color. It means women. And we don't talk enough, I think, about the fact that there's a cost to everything we understand, a human cost to everything we understand about, about the body. Molly, I could talk to you for hours, but we're not allowed to. So where can people find out more about you, please? Are you on the social medias? I am on all the I am on all the social media. Sometimes I, I wish I were on fewer of the social medias, <laughs> but I'm also a millennial and I am a writer, and, and so I'm on all the social medias. Um, and I'm an extremely Googleable person. My full name is Molly McCulley Brown. Um, I publish under my full name because Molly Brown is the least Googleable name of all time. <laughs> and if you Google Molly Brown, you're just going to get a lot of things about the Titanic. But if you <laughs> but if you Google Molly McCulley Brown. You will find my website, you will find my Twitter, you will find my Instagram. Fair warning, my Instagram is like largely just like pictures of cups of coffee. Um, but you can have a good time there if you would like. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very, very findable and I'm happy to be in touch with folks. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for chatting with me. Standard Issue. For all women.